0: Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho.
1: Glad that you're here too. Thanks. Yeah.
0: This week, we're covering Ezra Nehemiah. Now, this one is very historically relevant. So yeah. take, us, take us through the history here. I think it's the just the last
1: hundred years of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so the rest of many of the prophets and the other writings fit into this last hundred years. So we've just... Um, been going through um, Kings, this, and then Chronicles is the things that were left out of Kings. This initially was part of the book of Chronicles, and it was just one long book of history that went from the time of David to the end of the Hebrew Bible. And um, when the Septuagint was dividing them into scrolls, they cut it into separate books, so we had First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So um, we begin here historically after the Babylonian exile has taken place for a few years, and this is uh, d- depending if you're talking about the first or the second or the third deportation. It's fifty to seventy years that the Israelites uh, that were living in the southern area of Palestine are now having the opportunity to have a change of king and a change of political ideas and a return to their promised land. It's really quite interesting to see this political um, foreign policy change in in the Persians, very different than from the Babylonians. But the Medes So now and, the
0: Persians are in charge, right? Yep. Yeah, the Medes okay. and the
1: Persians come through and the Israelites, who were inspired, I believe, by this bird of the Lord, who felt like they wanted to go back to the promised land, come and show um this Persian king named Cyrus this scripture from Isaiah. And they show him his own name in their scripture. And this is 140 years before the time that it was happening, if we believe that Isaiah was written. Um, by the prophet Isaiah, who lived at the time of Hezekiah, which I do. And in Isaiah 44, he he says, this is starting about in verse 28, and I'll just keep going. Um, Now in the first year of the Cyrus, king of Persia, and then he goes on, he calls him, he is my shepherd. And he continues on a little bit later, whose right hand I have subdued the nation to him, And then he continues on a few verses down. He will free the Jewish people, but many people who are in subjugation are subjugated to him. And so the Lord moves him. Cyrus's heart is softened, and he has this um, political um, diplomacy of saying, You guys don't need to stay here. You don't need to be our servants here. You can keep paying taxes wherever you'd like. Go ahead. In fact, I'll be happy to open up the. wealth the treasury and give you back all the stuff that belongs in your temple if my name's in your holy book why don't you go rebuild your temple and they give him the menorah and the gold and the things that had come out of the pitchers and the vials and the silver and everything and i I guess they kept it um fairly um identifiable somehow library like orchestrated or something i don't know how they keep it filed but their system was somehow that even though we've gone from the babylonian empire and a little bit of time with the Medes, and then the Medes join in with the Persians as sort of a joint alliance for a period before the Persians um, take over. How many years was
0: this since Babylonian So it's between
1: 50 and 70 years. Hmm. And it's interesting because the book of Ezra and Nehemiah cover almost 100 years. Um, The book of Ezra does not actually start with Ezra. It starts out with um, Zerubbabel. Mm -hmm. And so even the book of Ezra is about 70, 80 years Actually, it may even be 90 if you go to the tip to tip. So, mm-hmm. But Ezra and Nehemiah cover about 100 years. And I guess our first main character would probably be King Cyrus. Uh, he's the yeah. Persian king. And then, of course, this he wants to plant um, a leader to help the people in the government back in Jerusalem. And so King Cyrus finds a descendant of David. And that's who Zerubbabel means. Is, but his name means one planted in Babylon. Zerubbabel mm. is referring to that. And I don't know for sure. It appears that he may have been a grandson of Jehoiachin, but um, there's a lot of parallels between um, Moses and other people as we look at him. But it's interesting that Cyrus also asks a descendant of Aaron to go back and be a joint ruler. And they choose someone whose name is Yeshua or mm. in Hebrew, Joshua, or in Greek, Jesus, as the high priest to return to the promised land. So it's, again, very symbolic of our Savior if we take a bird's-eye view to see, just like you know, Joshua was the one we talked about a few weeks ago who completed the Exodus cycle, taking the children of Israel into the promised land as our Savior, Jesus Christ, will take all those who have gathered to Israel into our eternal promised homes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just beautiful to see this again happening here. Um, I really feel like these people were trying to do their best. They were living the, the law the best they could. But initially, they're functioning without a prophet. They're just functioning by obedience to the law. And I am just so grateful we have a prophet directing us and giving us modern revelation. But within a few years, by chapter five, we've got prophets in the land again, hmm. Haggai and Zechariah. And, and then after about 60 years, um, the Persian king sends over Ezra. And he's also another priest, but he's also the scribe, and he, I believe he's the one that recorded this history, and that's why it, it bears his name as the title.
0: Okay, so was not a prophet, he's a scribe.
1: No, y- y- that's a good point. He
0: okay.
1: is—and He is j- and a scribe would be more like an attorney, one who is going to identify and interpret the law. Uh, he's very literate, hence the scribe. He can write things out, but usually their education is with um, legalese. And we, you know, I don't know how you felt when you read this these books, but I see this emphasis on the law.
0: Right. Well, it makes sense, like, given his profession. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. yeah, yeah, definitely. But I also see it going back to that um, idea that perhaps things were changed at the time of Josiah by the Deuteronomists that some right. biblical scholars adhere to, that the law becomes more important than the um, atoning sacrifice in the temple. And however, they do have a love for the temple and they are trying to rebuild it. But you, you just see this slight change that over hundreds of years becomes a major change in their emphasis. And I see this all the way through this book. But in fact, none of the leaders, Nehemiah was not a prophet either. He's also a political leader. He was the cupbearer for mm. um, King Artaxerxes and... Um, but the prophets we do see are Haggai and Zechariah, so mm. we've got a couple here, and that's that's great. Is there any other historical background you remember before we look at it literally? Do you remember what what, what themes did you see here when you were looking at? Well, I book?
0: see you mentioned the Exodus cycle. I see, mm. I see. Obviously, you know there was the sort of leaving of Israel, yeah, right, that happened uh, under force with the Babylonians, and they're coming back right uh, through inspiration, as we saw with. The prophecy. But this time it's a, th- there's always the struggle coming back, right? This
1: is very similar though, because Abraham was given the promised land, then they right. go to Egypt and then they come back. And so we have here again a return. Yeah. Right, right. I, I saw this repeated often, this remember, return, repent, rebuild. Right. And then repeat it again. Rebuild, repent. <laughs> They're just yeah. constantly asking them to return to their old ways and their covenants, their covenants, not they're natural man, but um, yeah, that that's great to tie yeah. it back to the type of types and shadows because then we see it consistent with our Savior as well. Yeah. As far as time goes, though, um, you know the the temple was finally destroyed in about five hundred and eighty six, and they um, Zerubbabel is back to rebuild it in in five thirty eight, mm-hmm. and he begins the project in five thirty Six, unless I've got that um, date wrong. But it says in in chapter two that it's the second year. Um, so as we go through the text, we'll get the we'll get the dates right. But they're written up there. Um, but I see the book sort of, at least the book of Ez, Ezra, in two parts. You first has Zerubbabel's efforts to rebuild the foundations of the temple, and that takes about a twenty year span, and then. We have a 60-year hiatus from the time that they came before Ezra comes, and then Nehemiah comes shortly after Ezra. So it, that's how it covers the 90 to a 100 a okay. years, whatever, for the two books. I don't know if you've ever heard of Eradrus, but before it was referred to, um, instead of as Ezra and Nehemiah, there were other names for these books, and they were... Um, they were put because they were one book, it was a large sort of chiastic structure. And it's really amazing how they have these things so consistently paralleled. But um, Zerubbabel returns and he lists all of his returnees in Ezra chapter one and two. And then we've got the rebuilding of the temple with lots of opposition right, um, right. in Ezra three through six. And then we've got that change to the return of Ezra. So it's 60 years later, that's chapters seven and eight. But the center, if you have both books together as one, is this purification of the people. And you're requesting them to not only be careful in their marriages, but their Sabbaths, whatever, in in addition to that. And then you come out of the chiasmus. And again, you have the return now instead of Ezra, you have the return of Nehemiah. Then the building of the walls with opposition. And prior in the text, it was the building of the temple. This is Nehemiah 3 through 7 is this building of the walls. And then interestingly, Nehemiah ends by repeating the list of people that are recorded in Ezra 1 and 2. Nehemiah ends by listing those names of the people who felt inspired to come. And at that point, there was 42, over 42,000 plus 7,000 slaves. So it was about 49,000 people. The exact numbers are in the text, but... Um, I don't know if their slaves were Israelites or not. They don't count them when they include that list of, but I hope they're still living the law of Moses. So they release their slaves every six years that they come and serve them and they're paid and they're released. So it's more like a indentured servant. I think I shouldn't probably use the word slave, even though that's what the text uses. Hmm. Um, At least the King James text, many other texts just call them. Right. But other than this foreign policy change, the world events, Are interesting because the Persian empire becomes so strong, starting with Cyrus and then um, we have four or five others, that they start attacking even the Greek empire and um, after finally it's destroyed. But we've got some great records. They're called the Cyrus cylinders and there's hundreds of these clay tablets that are engraved and then um, fired or else just baked in a in the sun, I don't know how they're hardened, but these ancient tablets that date from about 539. So the same time period is they're coming back. You know, if they're coming back right. in 538, this is recording the same area. Found, They're found in Babylon, and they've got all the scribes and the people that are writing, and it includes there a record that Cyrus says... Um, I'll just read it to you. It's, it's pretty amazing. As to the regions... And then he lists a whole bunch of towns. I returned to their cities, which had been in the cities a long time, the images, and he talks about all the things from the temple that are going to be taken back, the menorah and things like that, and established them for a permanent sanctuary. I gathered their inhabitants and returned them to their cities. So Mm -hmm. I um, put in myself the city of Jerusalem and the small towns around. You know, they're calling cities, even though I would call them a village or something, but Right here in um, Archaeological Finds, we see what Ezra and Nehemiah are referring to. So that's terrific that we've got uh, double records there. But should we jump into the text? Or is Let's there any other the themes it, or anything else you want to talk about?
0: Well, uh, well, there's a couple of different themes, especially around the temple, that we'll cover when we go through the text. Okay. And then, of course, um, how we treat the law um, and how actually these two books largely set up the environment that the Savior comes into.
1: I think so. So if these are being written four or 500 years before the Lord, four and 500 years before the Lord, it's this law, it's their last historical book of scripture that becomes the text that the Pharisees build their practices around. Yeah. 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 That's very true. It I just love the way that the book starts out with such joy and excitement to go right. back to their promised land. You know, it's not just Isaiah that had spoken of the name Cyrus, but Jeremiah also, I think it's chapter 22 or 24, where Jeremiah had said in 70 years of captivity, that was dating back to the first deportation, Right. Um, so the time that Daniel was taken. Um it's going to be fulfilled and it's pretty excited to see Ezra chapter one, beginning Cyrus, God has given me the kingdoms. Um, you know, and, and this is now he's, he is the God of Jerusalem and he will take you back. And Cyrus was, was a good enough man to feel that prompting and the Lord encouraged him enough that he followed through with it. Um, So that whole first chapter is gathering the vessels and appointing leaders. They call them princes. I think that's just in the King James. But all the things that are there back to take to the temple. And they've got hundreds and hundreds of miles with these valuables. So I'm sort of um, amazed that we don't have um, a lot of details on how they were. It says that the king was going to protect them as they went. But um, we don't know exactly how long it took them to go on that long journey from someplace on the Tigris-Euphrates, north of the Persian Gulf there, clear back down to Jerusalem. But I know I don't know if you noticed this, but Ezra and Nehemiah have a lot of chapters of just people's names.
0: right? And
1: so if you ever need a good list of names to look at, naming your dog or your child (laughs) or your um, whatever. Ezra's filled with lots of them. But um, Yeah,
0: your next email.
1: Yeah, Ezra Ezra chapter 2 does list, though, these names of the priests that were allowed to come back, and they were Levites. And it's interesting because... Do you remember back in the book of Moses, they said, if you are of, of Aaronic descent, if you have come from the lineage of Aaron, you can start working as a priest in the temple at age 30. But here they have so few coming back that he says in Ezra chapter three, we're going to have to ha- start having them come back at age and serve in the temple at age 20. We need we need more help. So we're going to have them a little bit younger. And I don't know if that changed by the time of the Lord to go back up to 30. I assume so. It it appears to be that way when we read the historical writings of the time. But the Levites were always 25. I don't know if they also changed to be in Ezra. It just says the priests, the Levites, the musicians. This is Ezra 2 verse 70. The gatekeepers, the temple servants, they all settled in their own towns along with some of their other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. And so they're just making themselves nice at home. They have great high hopes. But I initially I thought only 49,000 people, you know, even when Moses was there a thousand years earlier, we had 2 million. Right. This is such a tiny little fraction But I realized the land probably couldn't support more than that. You know, they don't have farming. They don't have nothing. The fields of—there's a few people living there. The poor were left to keep some of the ground. But I assume that you the, the land could not support a population of 2 million returning. Right. And one of the reasons why I think it, it was allowed at the time of Moses is they just captured someone else's cities, lived in their homes, and ate the food from their fields. Right. And—
0: and, so there was, there was already civilizations there. Yeah, and these right. people
1: were just the very poor Bedouin type that were left to keep the land. Although first and second kings both describe the fact that the Assyrians and the Babylonians did send other people out to the land of Palestine or Israel to watch over it and and keep some semblance of order, but it doesn't seem that it lasted very long. But. I think it's important to remember these people that are there, though, because they become important to us in a couple of chapters. So just wanted to bring those up now.
0: Right. So the first thing they do, it looks like, is build an altar.
1: Isn't that the right? best? I'm so glad you said that, John. Yeah. They build an altar is the first thing they do. I I just love that. they. And it, it says that they're going to have—they repaired the altar of uncut stones. And Moses wants it to— when Moses is giving the command, he wants that altar to represent this the promised Messiah. He wants it to be God-made, not man-made, so they cannot be hewn stones. He doesn't want it polished or anything. He wants it, the field stones, the uncut stones to be making into that altar or else slab of limestone is probably more popular in that area than anything else. But using those shaped God-shaped rocks to represent God. But it says, Ezra chapter 3, verse 2 talks about the daily sacrifices. Right. And we're told in back in Leviticus that you're supposed to have at least two a day for the daily sacrifice for all the people of Israel.
0: And this is the first time they've been able to do this in... At least 50, they, 60, 70 years, seven depending years. on yeah. who
1: you're there, because the temple wasn't destroyed until... So it's 50 years since the temple was destroyed.
0: Yeah,
1: hmm. But um, I love the fact that they build the altar... Before the temple. Yeah. They just want to make sure that they are back to sacrificing in remembrance of their God. And you see also in chapter 3, starting about verse 4, that they are celebrating their Feast of Tabernacles. So they must have come in the autumn time or the fall. At least that's when they're celebrating this feast. It says the second year, the second month, they start building the foundation of the temple. But this this feast in verse 4 is terrific. They're remembering the three major pilgrimage feasts. Passover would be in this early spring, then Pentecost, and then the Feast of the Tabernacles as the three that are outlined in the Law of Moses that everyone needs to come to the temple. And it says they all come, And but Ezra chapter 3 verse 8 says, it took them a year or so to, just to make sure there was food on their tables before they could gather to actually build the temple. Right. And it do, doesn't it sound like a Hosanna shout to you there in, in verse 8, 9, and 10? I don't, I don't know if it was or not, but um, I'll just read verse 7. They gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and they gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Zidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa. And so they're carrying them in from the Mediterranean. And and then down to verse 11, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. I, I usually read these chapter, these books in other translations. That was the um, NIV translation, because the NIV is so good about getting the gender right. And it allows you to see that men and women are both there celebrating and singing and praising God and honoring him in gratitude for returning there. But it just sounds like such a fabulous time. It, we're told that they came back with a hundred different outfits for the priests, and the priests in their robes are blowing their shofars, their trumpets of sorts and cymbals. It's just happy, happy time. But the irony is is that the book sort of ends in a anticlimax, um, but it begins with great hope. I this
0: um, well, Let's talk about how we get there a little bit. You so, know, well, actually, I, I do have some questions about the temple because this is the temple that gets built and it's not really destroyed the, again,
1: right? Oh, good, good. I'm glad you said that. In fact, I even have a chart on my on my videos where I showed the comparative size. Moses's tabernacle is the smallest. Then Solomon's is larger, and the foundation, which probably included the courtyard of Zerubbabel's temple, is even larger than Solomon's temple was. Mm. So we have a very small population. We don't have as much funding, but the king is giving a lot of of help. Um, But that temple was expanded by Herod to be the temple where the Lord was brought as an infant at 40 days old Mm. and then returned every Passover, it says, for as was the custom of their family with Joseph and Mary, including the age 12, where he chooses to stay behind and to talk right. about the law with um, the old elders that were there. But this temple was, the foundations of it became, um, it's, Herod's temple is still called the second temple. So Zerubbabel's temple was just expanded upon by Herod. And it was an enormous expansion. You know, he cuts off the whole top of Mount Moriah and Makes an enormous um, 35 acre addition um, or total um, right. expanse. So, but yeah, that, that's pretty exciting. But after this first two years of laying the foundation and having this, what I think is a Hosanna shout and this happiness, it, they have a lot of ad, um, adversity. And it, they call them their enemies in chapter four. Um, and now, I
0: who, who are these people?
1: I think the way they're described, they're the poor farmers that have been left on the land, but they say, you know, we were we were the people that were left here and we've been sacrificing. Um, so don't, don't be mad at us. We were sacrificing to your God. Please let us do it. They're distant relatives. The problem was these distant relatives had been intermarrying with the people that the king of Assyria and king of Babylon had already brought into the land, you know, these Right, um, other folks that I mentioned from Second Kings chapter seventeen and First Kings chapter seventeen. So let's just open up here, Ezra chapter four, verse one. They come and they, the Samaritans offer, "Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him." So, but Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua said to them, "You shall have no part with us in building the, our, a house of God." And then the people of the land were frustrated. their planned. I guess I skipped down a little bit. Frustrated their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus. And then as you keep looking down, they start frustrating at the time of King Cyrus all the way through down until the reign of King Darius. Mm. So um, uh, they go back and forth with these letters. And I, I just have to, before we get into the, the letter in chapter 23, the end of chapter 4, verse 23, it just want to talk about these verses for a minute. They seem to be not consistent with what the law of Moses suggests that we're doing with our neighbors. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. Right. Like, let me just flip open to those. Um, back, it's, it's the chiastic center of the entire Torah. Um, Numbers chapter 19. You know, if you take, I mean, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19. If you take the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus number, and go to the middle of it, you see this most important commandment that actually our savior, savior quotes when they ask him, what are the most important commandments? And of course, he quotes the Shema as the first one to love God. And then the second one, he quotes right here, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, love thy neighbor as thyself. He's quoting this chiastic center. And just a few verses after that, um the text quotes in um, verse twenty-five, no, verse um, twenty-seven. Um, well, it's this whole this whole other section. He talks about these natives, uh, these other people that are going to come into the land, and he wants us to be nice to them as well, and to be kind and allow them to have a place amongst them. I it just really makes me sad to see that. Um, They are not um, allowing them to join with them because the law of Moses had suggested that they should have done that. Um, I'll just read verse 34 here. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, as you were strangers in Egypt. I am the Lord your God.
0: So this is the irony, because I mentioned the parallels with you know, Babylon and Egypt, you know, a return to Jerusalem, right? A return to the mm-hmm. promised land. And they bring them with them this dedication to build a temple, to follow the law, right? Um, and have this really great experience with the law, which the first Israelites had trouble with, to say the least, right? Um, coming out of Egypt. And this, it seems to go the opposite, right? You know, well, you, you shouldn't You should intermarry, you, therefore you have no place with us. Exactly.
1: Rather than saying, you'd like to help? Do you want to know more? I mean, I remember taking um, leading tours of our temples during open houses. And um, people say, well, I want to come in after it's dedicated. I'd say, anybody can come in who has a temple recommend. If you'd like to learn more about how to get a temple recommend, we'd love to tell you. Anyone can come in with a recommend. We don't, we don't turn people away uh, because you're not one of us. You just become one of us, and then you can go in. And this sweetness of working together and sharing ideas is what we saw in Ruth and Naomi. Right. And it's just completely lost here. And unfortunately, this decision to say, kick him out, becomes such a challenge and a difficulty that by the end of Ezra, you know, they've written these—the enemies, these— I'm going to call them Samaritans, but they're the, the intermixing of all these different people that have been left in the land. Um, they've write, written these letters to um, the king and the king says, by force and power, I will make them cease the work of the temple. And so it's a, a tragic halt, but um, the letter anyway, and Ezra 4 doesn't seem to be the, the correct letter I don't know if you noticed that when you were reading, but um, it's written to the wrong king. It's written to King Artaxes rather than um, King uh, Cyrus, <laughs> so we're 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 sixty or seventy years later. We're writing to the wrong location. We're writing to the wrong. The people living in Israel are just a small little group of forty nine thousand people living around Jerusalem. Not it says in the letter they come all the way from the Tigris and Euphrates River all the way down to Egypt. So you know, they they really. Got the wrong things historically, and biblical scholars are frustrated that this letter that they're including here in the text is out of place chronologically and politically. And
0: so, who who did this? People compiled or Ezra? whoever
1: compiled? Yeah, okay. you know, Ezra got the wrong letter in, or a scribe was reading it, writing it afterward, and put the wrong letter in, or whatever. But it, it appears that we've got some wrong information there, and um, it's not until you know sixty years later that uh, Ezra shows up. Um, so I, I don't know if he just misunderstood, because under Ezra's time, it was that king. But anyway, regardless of the authenticity of it, I just feel like I, I hate bashing the Bible, but it's it's good to know that um, we've got some things here that are historically inaccurate and appear to be a mistake. But I'm not going to—we'll wait to get to heaven. You know, I, I'm not going to worry too much about this one. Yeah, I'm I'm not too worried
0: but about it. But the thought here that— um... Because like, you said this is the Samaritans. What, what's going on with this letter? What was, what was well? The do intent? you remember
1: the Samaritans? Obviously, had been the northern tribes, right? Um, so they had had animosity ever since the time of King David, King Solomon. That you know, there was a little bit of a problem. Pro-children
0: of the covenant, though, right? Abraham yeah, Susan. they were. Yeah. And
1: a thousand years earlier, um, well, even five hundred years earlier. But then the northern tribes are taken to Assyria few people are left. The southern tribes are taken to Babylon. A few people are left. They start intermarrying with others in the area. And that's who now make up the Samaritans. So they say, oh, we've still been offering sacrifices to your God this whole time that you've been gone.
0: Yeah. So we believe the same is basically what they're saying, right?
1: The problem is they've also been sacrificing to the God's yeah. Other gods, you know it. it, it it's they are which not. We
0: saw which the Israelites were doing. Uh, this is Elijah, and so the frustration
1: of right? yeah. uh, Zerubbabel and Yeshua. The priest is you're not pure blood. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not. You're not doing things exactly right. But instead of teaching them and working with them, they call them enemies and they say stay away. And so there's this animo The frustration turns into animosity, which then turns into hatred. And you see what happens by the time of the New Testament.
0: They created a war.
1: You, you, exactly, you won't yeah. even walk in their land. You won't even drink water from there unless you're the, unless you're someone who's completely politically um, as forward thinking as our Savior, who goes and drinks from the woman of the well. Right. But everybody else won't even walk through their land.
0: And gives the parable of Good Samaritan, of course. <laughs> and right. gives
1: the parable of Good Samaritan. But this is one of the great examples to see where that animosity um, comes to head.
0: Yeah, this is where it shows up and is really seated. Uh-huh. And, give, and it's in it's yeah, you know 500
1: years before the Savior's time, but Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really tragic. But so after they start the foundation stones um in in 536 um it 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 was discontinued by 534. And We're told in chapter 5 that the Lord sends prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to come. And they say, I went back and I read the books of these prophets to see where they fit in. And they said, build the temple. Don't fear man. Stop fearing man. Build the temple. And Ezra says, we were being wise and prudent to stop the work. So Mm -hmm. you you see a slightly different perspective coming from either the prophet or else the political leader. But um, it was resumed again in 520. And we read about that in Ezra when another, a second letter was written at the end of chapter five, and they say, um, Darius, dear king, now that you're on the throne, could you please go back and look at this proclamation that was given by um, King Cyrus and allow us to finish our work and, and keep giving us funding? And so it looks like you get more and more of the Israelites who were in Babylon, mainly from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. But there were other tribes there as well that came back. Asher and um, we have um, even in the New Testament, there's just little examples of lots of different tribes that are coming back in. But as they trickle in over the next sixty years, some um, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they bring you know another thousand with them, another thousand seven hundred with them. You know, bring more and more in. They're able to finish the temple, and it sounds to me like the rebuilding didn't take that long because it was completed in five sixteen. It was dedicated in 515, um, right before Passover. The dedication occurs, um, it, and they're able to hold a Passover festival. I, I love the record that they're still remembering these wonderful times of, of the ancient Moses again, going back to the Exodus and seeing them in that cycle. And they have their sacrifices and have their seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just as the law of Moses describes. And um, then we have this 60 year hiatus. That's how chapter six finishes with the Passover. And then um, we don't hear anything until about the mid 450. So the temple has now been standing for 50 or 60 years when Ezra arrives. And then we've got these last few chapters on that. But it sounds like he's a Torah scholar. I meant to mention one more thing about the Samaritans when you asked about who are they, what do they believe? Um, The Samaritans believed in the Torah. They believed in the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, but they did not accept the prophets at the time of the New Testament. I don't know exactly what they're believing here, but at the time of the New Testament, um, people like Stephen, do you remember in the book of Acts, the stoning of Stephen? Stephen's text is from the Samaritan Pentateuch. When you read it closely, um, I had to use a biblical scholar because I don't know my Aramaic and um, the differences between the um, texts well enough. But if if the scholars that I've studied are accurate, um, we had converts in Christianity who were Samaritan, which makes sense because the first branch of Christianity came from our Savior his time period at the woman at the well there in John chapter four, he says he stays with them and establishes a branch of the first, the first believers or the town there of where the woman at the well was from in Nikarn. But Ezra arrives, I guess we're up to chapter 10 and I love verse, um, we now have a new king on the throne. This is verse seven and eight. Um, Artaxerxes and he reigned, we know from records that from about 465 to 424 BCE, and he sends out a royal decree. And I love verse 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do and teach Israel. And so he wants to go back. He joins, he's prepared, and he's also prepared politically because he has a very good relationship with this this king of Persia who sends him with him. And he says the priests are not to be taxed, which is great. He, has enough, he knows enough of the law that he says we shouldn't be taxing our... And this proclamation goes through, we're told in verse 25 of chapter seven, beyond the river Euphrates. So it goes to the whole Persian empire to say that we can go back if you want. Um, and they do, and they come back fasting. They're fasting for protection. Um, and this is the same. We've, we've just jumped over the time period where the book of Esther fits in. Okay. Esther fits in right before Ezra arrives that during that 60 years, but we see in in the book of Ezra, people are fasting and asking for protection as well. So the two books are overlapping on those themes, but Um, and it's interesting because when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, um, after about four months, it says that this is chapters, um, seven and eight that he reads in Hebrew, but it's now translated into Aramaic so the commoners can understand it. So Aramaic is the language of the Jews in the new Testament, but it really is the language that came from Babylon and the Persian empire. So they bring that back, and it's only the scribes who are reading the old text in Hebrew. And by the time of the New Testament, all they have is the Septuagint. They no longer have the Hebrew text. It's not until we get the Dead Sea Scrolls that we find the Hebrew text again. But at the time of the New Testament, most of the readings are in the Greek translation, which we refer to as the Septuagint, since it was claimed to be made in 70 days by
0: 72 scholars. So Ezra... Historically, he he arrives. You know, there's this, like you said, this purification. Purification. Let's he go brings back to the law. Right. right. The,
1: one of the things that he attacks that really is puzzling to me is their marriages. Right. And that's in chapter nine. And I, I, he's really saying, what are you marrying out of the covenant for? But I appreciate the context of the Apostle Paul when he refers to in First Corinthians when they say, what about if we're married to somebody who's not in the faith? He says. Stay married and try to convert them and be a good example for them and teach them charity. And if it doesn't work out, if they leave, let them leave and have no hard feelings. If they want to leave, they want to leave. But you just live the gospel and your marriage will be better. And that's not the approach that Ezra was enforcing here. He said, just divorce them and leave them, just abandon your wives and your children. And Nehemiah records the same thing as well in his purification accounts, is to If you've married out of the covenant, just leave them.
0: And I... It seems like, you know, the the idea of purification is wonderful. They seem to be doing it quite a bit differently than...
1: The reason why I know they're not doing it right is because when I went back to read the book of Haggai and Zechariah, they specifically address not leaving your wives. Right. They specifically address stay married. So there's a dichotomy between the political arm of the new nation... Well, they're not their own nation yet, the vassal state. Right. um, And the prophet's message. But Haggai says, treat your wives well, take care of your wives and your children. So I appreciate that there's always consequences to our behavior. And if you're going to, and I don't want to ever throw stones at a different generation. You know, our marriage customs are not their marriage customs. And I don't want to suggest that the law of Moses marriage laws should fit to our generation right but in this ancient text, Ezra and Nehemiah are encouraging the Israelites to leave their foreign wives and Haggai um, is saying if there's any chance to convert them just bring them in why stay married or let's let's nurture them and work with them you know rather than and I appreciate that we have the terrible example of King Solomon whose heart was led away. And I'm sure that Ezra and Nehemiah, as they quote this example of King Solomon, are paranoid about getting kicked out again of their promised land. They've been working their whole lives on this, and they felt prompted by the Spirit to come. It says they were prompted by the Spirit of God. um, it's Some of the purification is good. I love the way that they talk about the Sabbath. They want the walls of Jerusalem, the gates to be closed on the Sabbath. There will be no merchandising on the Sabbath. Um, Let's be careful to make sure that the Sabbath is a day of worship and a day of rest and a day where we focus on our Savior and our our future Redeemer, in their case, the the Messiah. But um, some of the reforms seem to me that they are taking the law into their own hands and not following the counsel of the
0: prophets. It seems to be right to me as well that that they're really focusing on the law. Um, their purification is really. Mm-hmm letter of the law, right? Not spirit mm-hmm. of the law.
1: And yet I think their hearts are in the right place. We're They're just trying. so fortunate to have a prophet that we can just double check ourselves all the time saying, right. are we in going in the right direction? Let's just make sure we're on the right track. I feel like I can use my conference reports as my guideline for the next six months of my life because look at Nehemiah chapter one. I really feel like his heart's in the right place. This starts in about verse five and I'll just go down to about verse 11. I beseech thee, O Jehovah, the God of heaven and the great terrible God that keepeth covenant and loving kindness with them, that love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attended to thine eyes open, that thou mayest break unto the prayers of thy servant. Remember, I beseech thee, I'm skipping down here, verse eight. Remember, I beseech thee, the peoples, but if ye return unto me and keep my commandments and do them, and then skipping down a little bit, um, yet will I gather them, from thence and i will bring them unto the that which i have chosen you know he's gone through the the old scripture texts the right. scrolls and he's found these promises where the lord says you'll return in jeremiah and ezekiel and so nehemiah continues i pray thee thy servant this day and grant mercy you know he's his heart i think is in the right place and the persian government authorizes more israelites to return it's again this theme of return rebuild r- repent and um, Artaxerxes is the one who gives Nehemiah the funding to rebuild the wall. And, and I read a little bit about some archaeologists who've done this work, and it looks like the wall around Nehemiah's city is larger than the one that was destroyed 100 years earlier by the Babylonians. So it now encompasses several more um, little villages to provide more safety for these people. But the the wall in the country was still only 45 miles. Mm. So it's still a very tiny little city. So this is the, the walled country. This circumference is 45 miles of this wall. Mm. But again, we have opposition from the Samaritans on the building of the wall. It says one person has to hold a sword. It's the other person's building. And everything is very difficult. They have not made peace with their enemies at all. In fact, the antagonism has grown to be quite severe. But chapter eight and Ezra, I mean, excuse me, and Nehemiah chapter eight and nine also refer to separating themselves again from the foreigners and um, the same themes that we saw in Ezra. But he gives this wonderful sermon in Nehemiah chapter nine, starting about verse six, where they ask for the Lord's mercy. And Nehemiah ten, they want to make a covenant as a community to walk in God's ways and keep his commandments. And then we've got, again, the list of the population, and then the book ends. But it sounds to me like the covenant community is trying to um, join together to dedicate the walls and make these reforms on their Sabbath in chapter 12. But I know that it's not exactly the way the Lord wanted, because when the temple is rededicated, there's no presence of the cloud or the fire. Right. There's no Urim and Thummim. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no, they call it, you know, the Shekinah. There's no presence of the Lord at Mm. at these rededications. And and I hope that that maybe was just missed out from the text. But as we look at the restoration, we see that, no, the Lord did send it again at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. We have that, there was so much fire that the neighbors were not, believers, um, came running with their buckets of water to help put out the fire, thinking that this angelic visitation was a literal fire. But it was, I believe, a reenactment of this pattern that had been established at the early tabernacle and temple ceremonies where the Lord comes down in a pillar of fire to bless his people. But this important hundred-year period is the last hundred years of the Old Testament. So now as we move ahead, we'll just tuck the and rest of the writings, and then later on the prophets into the time period of First and Second Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah.
0: Right. So next week will be Esther.
1: Esther. Look yeah. forward to talking to you then. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye.